All right, I'm going to take you back to Mark this morning. Let's go back to Mark chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 13 down to verse 22. The majority of the message will come from 18 to 22 this morning. But let's read through this in context to get the flow of what Mark is conveying to us. In verse 13, Mark writes this, speaking of Jesus. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was sitting with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, his followers, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Sometimes those last two verses are a little hard to understand. So I, I hope that I can help clarify that this morning as we go through this passage. In verses 13 to 17, we're moving from the gracious call of Levi to salvation to a loaded religious question. In verse 18, what we see is a group of people who have been observing Jesus' ministry for a while, following him. Not necessarily disciples of his, but followers, those who are watching and observing and comparing his ministry to the ministry of the Pharisees. And so they ask a loaded theological and religious question. And here's the question, basically. Why are your disciples ignoring the required fasts? Now, understand this. They weren't talking about God's command to fast on the Day of Atonement. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about the man-made tradition of the Pharisees when they say this in this passage. There was only one fast in the Bible that's actually commanded by God, and that was on the Day of Atonement. They were to fast. All other fasts in the Old and New Testament, they were to be driven by a burden or a personal conviction, but not by rituals or tradition. Now, 
It's not my intent this morning to give you some guidelines on how to fast and whether you should or shouldn't. That's not what I'm here to do, okay, other than to say this. A true biblical fast can never be forced on you as a rule by anyone. That is not a true biblical fast if it is being forced upon you. And a true biblical fast is never a means to obtain God's favor either. That's what's going on in the minds of the Pharisees. That's what's going on in the minds of those who are there gathered around Jesus asking this question. And that's what Jesus is actually going to correct here in verses 18 to 22. Now, the question in verse 18 actually arose because they had been paying attention to what Jesus was preaching. They'd been paying attention to this grace-driven preaching of Jesus. This preaching declared that you are saved, you are rescued, as we heard this morning, you are rescued from sin by divine achievement, not religious rituals or human merit. They had heard that. That was new to them. They hadn't heard that from the Pharisees who had taught them to fast on these required days to make them more acceptable in God's sight or to earn God's favor to look upon them in some special way because of their fastidious obedience to a ritual. They knew that this message from Jesus and this attitude by those who are his disciples was different than that of the Pharisees. Again, they knew that he was teaching something about divine achievement, not religious rituals. Look at Luke 4 to see that. They had heard things like this. Look at Luke 4:16. Luke 4:16. They had heard a grace-driven sermon here from the Lord Jesus Christ unlike that of the Pharisees. In verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace, his favor. They had heard this message. This is not the message of the Pharisees. This was a grace-driven message, not a religious-driven message or a man-made tradition here that they were hearing from Jesus and observing in his disciples as they were rejoicing in the presence of the bridegroom. Now, we all know a lot about, I think, the Pharisees here, but I'm going to just remind you of some things that I think are important in this narrative. During Christ's day, the man-made tradition of the Pharisees taught that godly, really godly people should fast twice a week. Monday and Thursday, because they thought that that would somehow secure God's favor or merit God's blessing upon their life. Look at Luke 18 to see the attitude of the Pharisees of Christ's day here. They reflect this. I think this man actually reflects the attitude of those who were teaching this, teaching that this man-made tradition of 
fasting twice a week would somehow bring greater blessings into their life. Look at this, this story here. Verse 9. Said he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be Exalted. When, when Jesus is addressing this crowd in Mark 2, he's going to humble the Pharisees who might be among them. He is saying, you're fasting. This fast that you see is required by the Pharisees is not what's going to bring God's favor upon your life, but rather trusting in me. And what I am going to do will bring you great feasting instead of fasting. During this time, when the Pharisees taught this, people would go about their fast in a very outward way to make sure everyone knew that they were really being pious, that they were really spiritual. They would be mournful outwardly. They would be sad. They would put ashes upon their head. They would wear sackcloth. All this was done, for the most part, in an attempt to draw out God's favor through their efforts and their self-sacrifice because this is how the pharisees had came in and corrupted the original message of god's grace that was from the beginning they came in trying to protect god's commands god's rule over israel by adding more perimeters around it more legalistic guides to keep them safe but in reality they were moving the people further from god's grace and they're putting more trust in themselves, in their sacrifices, rather than looking to the one that was promised by God to his people. So when you come to Mark 2, and you see this group asking this question, you understand that they're asking this because they're confused by what they're seeing in their spiritual leaders and then what they're seeing in the Lord Jesus and his ministry. Because when Jesus shows up and he begins to preach... It's so different. It's so different in the way he approaches sinners. It's so different in the way they respond to his ministry personally, powerfully, joyfully, unlike that of the Pharisees. When they hear about how God's favor is shown to sinners like Levi, who was not religious, who was not very pleasing in God's sight whatsoever. They are upset. They are confused. But they do see that there is a difference. This group of people who asked this question saw that there was a difference in Christ's grace-driven ministry and that of the tradition-driven Pharisees. The difference created this serious question. This is not just a slight question. This is serious. 
If the Pharisees, our spiritual leaders, teach us this and you're not doing it, which one is right? And why are they wrong? Why should we listen to you? So in verses 19 to 22, Jesus uses this question to make two gracious illustrations about the superiority of God's grace over man-made religion. And here, here are the two gracious illustrations. He says this, number one, God's grace replaces the rotting garments of self-righteousness. God's grace replaces the rotting garments of self-righteousness. That's one illustration he's going to give. The other illustration is this. God's grace replaces the rotting wine of human effort. God's grace replaces the rotting wine of human effort. Now, the illustrations, I think, begin here, obviously, in verse 19. Verses 19 and 20, Jesus illustrates that God's grace replaces the rotting garments of self-righteousness with the new covering, a new cloth of Christ's righteousness. Look at verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And we'll move on to 20 in just a second, but I want you to think about this one for a second. First of all, notice this. Who is he talking about? He's talking about his disciples, the wedding guests. He's talking about these special called out guests who were brought alongside him to rejoice with him in a wedding that is to come. Now, the people around him listening to this, hearing him say this in verse 19, they understood his illustration perfectly here, even the beginning of it, because they understood Jewish wedding etiquette. They understood that no one would go to a wedding with a patched up robe. That's not how you went to a wedding. You didn't put on your old robe and patch up the holes and go to the wedding. No, you put on a new robe to go to a wedding. You put on a new look to come to this wedding to celebrate. And that's what he's saying. Basically, he's saying this. Look, my my guys aren't fasting. They're not mourning. They're not looking like those who are in distress. They're rejoicing. Because you don't go to a wedding to mourn. You go to rejoice. They're getting ready to rejoice with me. So they're coming with joy in their hearts, following me. They don't need to be fasting at this time. See, the people understood this illustration of bridegroom and and bride very well at this time. They would have understood the joy of a Jewish wedding very well at this time. We really don't understand it. We, we, We do understand to some degree the joy of a wedding. But the Jewish wedding in particular was extremely rejoiceful. In in Christ's day, after a Jewish wedding, the couple, get this, ladies, sorry, the couple did not go on a honeymoon. There was no honeymoon that followed the wedding. Something better happened. They actually stayed at their home for seven days, feasting and celebrating this new covenant with their friends, with their chosen friends, the wedding guests. During that week, the bride and groom were put on a pedestal, not literally, but figuratively. 
they were treated like a king and a queen during that week by their friends. And for those who were poor at this time, this would have been an extremely blessed week because they were able to actually rest from all their work and be served and cared for by others. Many would think this is the happiest week of their entire marriage, their entire life. And here's something interesting about that week. During that week, all the wedding guests were exempt from all the pharisaical fasts. As a matter of fact, a rabbinical rule at that time said this, all in attendance of the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances that would lessen their joy. Now, Jesus knows all this as he's speaking to this crowd. So, as he says that, he knows that they're understanding what he's saying. In the presence of the bridegroom, fasting is forsaken because there's a wedding to come. There's a wedding to celebrate. There's a time of rejoicing that they should be enjoying. They should be feasting, not fasting, not mourning when the bridegroom is present. But sadly, the Pharisees weren't rejoicing at this time. They weren't rejoicing in Christ's presence because Jesus' presence at this time threatened their very existence. It threatened to end their self-righteous kingdom because in the Messiah's presence, the worn-out garments of man-made religion was revealed to be stained with hypocrisy, and they knew it. They knew their hearts. Christ's humble presence, his humble ministry, as he comes to serve and not be served, it rebuked them. Christ's teaching, his, his grace-driven teaching, revealed something about their hearts. It exposed their hypocrisy. And it caused the stains on the Pharisees' religious garments to be seen by everyone in comparison to the bridegroom. And Jesus makes sure that everyone can see the stains of their hypocrisy when he says what he says in Matthew 23. Look there with me. Jesus' very presence was threatening to those who trusted in man-made religion. Look what it says here in 23, 1 to 7. Then Jesus saw the crowds. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to remove them with, with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they will make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called teacher, rabbi by others. Then down, look at verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, play actors, pretenders, hypocrites. 
For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make one single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that was made, that has made the gold sacred? You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is made on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. Jesus is exposing by his very presence and by his teaching the hypocrisy of man-made religion. People who do this, they want others to join in with them to make them feel better about themselves because they know they can't keep the rules. So they feel like if they could get others to be as miserable as they are, they're going to be a whole lot better off in the majority. So they gather up as many as they can and try to make them twice the son of hell as themselves because it makes them feel exalted. It makes them feel as if they have actually accomplished something. The Pharisees really did believe in their unregenerate heart, that all these things they were doing was bringing them closer to God. And Jesus exposed it all as a fraud. I know your hearts, he says. He goes on to call them whitewashed sepulchers full of dead man's bones, pretenders, hypocrites. Now understand this. When the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, shows up, doing exactly what the Old Testament prophesied he would do, the Pharisees didn't rejoice at the bridegroom's presence. Instead, they treated him like the man who owned the vineyard's son. And when the son came to correct those who were the stewards of the vineyard, they raised up to kill him because he threatened their own kingdom. It is horribly sad to see this what's even sadder to me today is this there are many people who are religious and in church doesn't mean they're saved but they're in church they're following the rules the rituals they're morally upright but they're just as far from the kingdom of god as the pharisees were here in this passage they are blind guides thinking what they do is going to either gain god's favor or keep God's favor. When in reality, God's favor is just that. It's a favor. It's grace. It's undeserved. You can't merit it. You can't merit it because you're sinful. Whatever good deeds you do, Isaiah says, they're polluted with sin. Like a filthy garment. So even on your best day, you're a stench in the nostrils of God. Unless you're covered by His grace. Now, if the Pharisees in Christ's time and in Mark's narrative, if the Pharisees would have been fasting for the right reasons, this would have been a different story. If they would have been fasting because their self-righteousness was being exposed and they were mourning over this and they were repenting like this sinner named Levi here in this passage, then instead of fasting, they could have been feasting with Christ at this time. They could have been praising him, but instead 
they're mourning the bridegroom's presence. Isn't that sad? There was no joy in their hearts when the bridegroom was present. Instead, there was envy and pride that drove them to even say, crucify him. Look back with me at Mark 2.20. They could have been feasting with Christ, but instead they were mourning. The people were asking about this. And here Christ tells the people that unlike the Pharisees, the bridegroom's guests had no reason to mourn and fast at this time. That doesn't mean they would not mourn and fast in time. I'm not saying, Jesus wasn't saying, that you shouldn't fast. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that it should be done, as I said earlier, because of a burdened heart for others, because of a desire to feast upon God's truth and his direction more than your own physical strength and and health. Jesus is saying there's a time for mourning. There's a time for fasting, even for the believer, but not when the bridegroom is present, but when he's taken away. The time would come for his guests to fast and to mourn, but it would only be for a short season. Look at verse 20. He says, the days will come. So he's telling them, look, you're asking why they're not fasting. Understand the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. Now, this is fascinating here. Here, Jesus is prophetically saying that, look, the wedding joy that you see In my disciples, one day this is going to cease. My guests will not always be this joyful. But understand this, it's only going to cease for a season in order to bring joy to all mankind. Look at verse 20. He says his disciples are going to fast until the groom is taken away. Snatched away violently is what that Greek term means here. It implies in it death. He's saying the Messiah, the bridegroom, would one day be snatched away violently, just as the Old Testament prophesied. Look at Isaiah 53.8. In 53.8, we see the day that Jesus is talking about here in Mark 2.20. The day that his guests would fast. They would mourn. And understand something about fasting. Uh, I said I wasn't going to get into all this, but I will just a second. We can intentionally fast, and there are times we should do that. But I think the most biblical and the most God-honoring kind of fast come because you truly are so burdened and so brokenhearted over a situation that you don't even want to eat. All you want to do is pray. All you want to do is call upon God. All you want to do is feed on his truth. So much so that it consumes even your lunchtime. Even your break time. I think when you see Jesus going out at different times and praying alone, I think he's he's consumed in prayer to the point that he's not even thinking about eating. That's what a true and biblical fast, I think, should look like. It doesn't mean you shouldn't schedule one. It doesn't mean you shouldn't plan one. Just saying, I think that when you really honestly are like the disciples were the day that Christ was ripped away violently, you're not thinking about eating, you're fasting. You're relying on God for strength. That's what was happening the day that Christ was taken away. 
And understand this, the disciples, the, the guests, understood that he was being taken away on their behalf. He was oppressed, verse, verse 7 actually, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. There's the phrase. Taken away. Think about Peter when he denies Christ three times. What, what, what happens after that? He runs off weeping. He runs off weeping. And I think the difference between Peter and Judas and their betrayals is the evidence of God's grace in this weeping. Judas felt sorry for himself and hung himself. Peter wept, mourned his betrayal. But when Christ came to him on that rocky sea and called him again, he came running. He came rejoicing. But on that day, the wedding guests would weep, Jesus says in Mark 2.20. But again, only for a season. They would weep for a season because of the resurrection. Him being taken away in death was only for a short time. They understood that they would even have a greater reason to rejoice because of Christ's teaching about grace. God's favor that had came to them, that they had experienced. Ronnie talked about sharing your testimony this morning in evangelism. You have a testimony of God's unmerited favor that you can share with those who are in need of Christ. They had that too. They knew that there was something waiting beyond the grave for them because of Christ's achievements, not because of their own, not because of their fasting, not because of their religious activity, because of Christ's accomplishments. That alone secured them, even at that time when it looked like they all scattered from him But yet they were all brought back because of God's grace. They had a greater reason to rejoice because they knew that there was greater grace to come to his church. Those who would be called through their preaching. Now, back in Mark 2, 21, Christ reveals why there would be even greater reasons to rejoice through his second illustration here. In 2.21, Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Old garment here is reflecting man-made religious traditions. Okay, understand that. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth, new cloth, on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and and a worse tear is made. So the the illustration is supposed to be self-explanatory. All right, for people who understood at that time what that would do, right? They understood sewing things back together, patching things back together. And what he's saying is you simply can't blend something new with something that is worn out, especially something that's worn out by sin. Something that's polluted by sin cannot have something new attached to it. So he's talking about the traditions of the men that were leading them, the Pharisees. You can't take this corrupted tradition and attach the gospel to it, it'll rip apart. It'll come undone. He's saying, look, 
I did not come. I did not come to patch up your man-made religion. I came to replace it. I came to replace it. That old garment is being replaced. Human effort, traditions of men, replaced, made new because of Christ. Now, in verse 21, it's very clear to me, I hope it's clear to you, that when Jesus says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth, a new cloth, to an old garment, he's not talking about an old garment being God's law. He's not talking about the law of God. He's talking about the traditions of men that were added to the law of God. We know he's not talking about God's law because God's law is eternally holy and eternally good. He's speaking of the corrupt man-made traditions added by the Pharisees that were trying to be used to obtain or secure God's favor at that time. He says, look, you take the gospel and you try to add something to it, you've torn it all apart. Nothing will hold together. It's Jesus plus nothing that equals everything. And I think it's so important for us to understand this, because even as Christians, sometimes we can get to this point where we think we're saved by grace, through faith in Christ, none of ourselves. But man, when I, when I really blow it, when I have failed God miserably, when I have sinned against my family, when I've sinned against my church, when I've sinned against God himself, I better do something to make things right. I better, I better start going back to church more faithfully. I better, I better read my Bible more often in the morning. Longer times. Maybe I better go share the gospel with somebody. Maybe, maybe I need to, to actually just be a little more loving toward others. Maybe if I do that, it'll sort of smooth out those bumps between me and God. Folks, that, that will never bring you closer to God. If Christ died for you, if God has shown you his unmerited favor and his love for you in Christ's sacrifice in your place, there is nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable in his sight. He's already done it for you. Once he has loved you in Christ, he loves you for an eternity. There's, there's no variation in his love for you based on your performance. And that's what was happening here at this time period in which Jesus is actually talking to this group of people. The Pharisees had said, look, Yes, God is good. God is holy. But if you want to stay holy and good in his sight, keep these extra traditions. It'll keep you from breaking the big ones. And it couldn't. It actually caused self-righteousness and pride to build up in their hearts, which separated like a new garment or a new cloth attached to an old garment. It separated, ripped them apart. People still try to do that today. They try to keep in favor with God through their own religious efforts. I guarantee you this. There are people in this room that try to do that. I'm one of them. I struggle with this. There are times when I absolutely fail as a Christian. I would be ashamed for you to know what I have done. And immediately in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to call Ronnie or Justin and just have a spiritual conversation because that'll sort of equal things back out. Maybe that'll put me back on the, the right track a little bit here. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't desire that, to be with brothers and sisters and be encouraged. But there is this, still in my unredeemed flesh, there is this desire, there's this thought that says, maybe if I could just do a little more, this guilty feeling would go away. Listen, folks, 
that guilty feeling is there to give you repentance. The Holy Spirit granted that to, to give you conviction so that you could turn back to the Savior to find the grace that was already waiting for you there. Not to make you try to earn some sort of blessing from God by trying to make things right on your own. That's such a deadly and slippery slope to get onto. Before you know it, you'll know you never can achieve that feeling of righteousness. And so you just say, forget it all. I'm just going to slide on into sin and settle in. That is the danger here that we all face, even as Christians under God's grace. Listen, when you fail as a Christian, and you will, and you are going to do this until Christ either brings you home or comes back to get us all, you're going to struggle, you're going to fail. And those failures are simply meant to bring you back to the gospel, to the good news of what God has done for you in spite of yourself. He didn't save you because you're going to be a good Christian. He didn't save you because he's going to make you an evangelist or a pastor. He saved you by his own loving grace for his own glorious praise. There's nothing you can do to change that. Just rejoice in it. Rest in it. They weren't resting in it at this time. In Mark 2, Jesus is teaching us that they needed to rest in this. Because they needed to understand that God's grace can't be mixed with the worn-out robes of human effort. You can't take our efforts and mix that are mixed with sin and, and make yourself acceptable to God. Because you and I know this, we cannot keep the law of God perfectly. None of us can. We look for Christ in that. Only Christ kept it from the heart for us. So we can't trust in the stained covering of our self-effort, our good works, our religious activity to keep us in God's favor. We can only look to Christ's covering that was acceptable to God in our place, that is sufficient to cover us for eternity. Isn't that good news? Forever, the covering, the new covering, the new cloth that we are now wearing will shield us from the wrath of God. And not only shield us, but cause him to draw us to himself in love because he sees the work of his son covering us. It's the blood-soaked robe of Christ that is our new covering. And you cannot, you cannot try to build on any other foundation than that. That is what keeps us in God's favor. That's what brought us God's favor. That's what we should rejoice in this morning and rest in when we fall short of God's glory. We should do that because God's grace promises us this new cloth, this new covering, based on nothing that we have done but only what Christ has accomplished in our place. It's based on God's unmerited favor. That's, that's an astounding concept to me. The grace we enjoy, understand this, the grace that we enjoy brought us the riches of God at Christ's expense. The favor that, that you have right now, understand this, every one of us here, if we were to enter into God's presence apart from this righteous robe of Christ, we would be consumed. We would be consumed. But the scripture says that we can now come to the very throne of grace in a time of need and find help because of Christ, because of God's favor that came to us at Christ's expense. That, that's what filled the hearts, I think, of the, the bridegroom's guest here in Mark 2.20. That's what should fill our, 
hearts with joy this morning. It should fill our hearts with joy like new wine would fill the hearts of the wedding guests. Look at verse 22. Jesus' illustration, the first illustration, told us that God's grace replaces the rotting garments of self-righteousness with the new cloth of Christ's righteousness. But the second illustration teaches us that God's grace replaces the rotting wine of human effort with, secondly, the new wine of the Holy Spirit. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now understand this, at a, at a wedding, at a wedding feast, a wedding celebration, you always wanted to use the best wine, the purest wine. You would never want to use a diluted mixture. That would show that you're cheap. That would show that you're not really honoring the bride and groom who are being treated like a king. It would mean that you are going to dilute the celebration as well. You wanted the, the purest and the best wine to celebrate the new life that these two had together. And what Jesus is teaching us here in verse 22 is that you can't mix something pure with something diluted by sin. The pharisaical man-made religious traditions were diluted by sin. You can't take the new, the truth of God's grace in Christ and mix them two together and come up with something pure. You come up with something polluted at that point. Now, it might be good for us to understand the importance of new wine and how they made new wine at this time to understand this illustration a little bit better. New wine was, understand this, it was contained and purified in what he says here in new wineskins. That sounds a little gross when I explain it, okay? These wineskins are made out of goat skins, okay? Now, I don't know how many of you have ever skinned a goat. I've skinned a deer or two. And it's, it's very interesting, put it that way. But to pour my drink into its skin afterwards, I'm not real thrilled about thinking that, about that, okay? That's, that's not appealing to me, to think I'm going to pick up this deer's leg and drink out of it. That just doesn't sound good. It didn't sound good to them either. There was a process involved to get really pure wine using these new goat skins. They would kill a goat, skin it, clean it, then they would sew up the legs of that fresh skin, and they would use the neck, actually, they used the neck for a spout, and they would fill it with new wine. Then they would leave that wine in the skin for a long time to age, and then settle basically the, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to say this pleasantly, the remnants of what was inside of the skin down to the bottom of the skin. Then they would pour that that fluid, that new wine and the remnants from that skin into a new wine skin. And they continued doing this, going back and forth until basically all the bitterness and the remnants were settled out, were taken out. Then it could be poured into one new skin, and it was a pure wine at that point. That was important. They, they had to use a new skin for this. They couldn't have used an old hide. What happens if you use an old hide? Anybody know? Have you ever picked up an old piece of leather? It's brittle. It's hard. And if you put something in it that's, that's pressurized, it's going to bust. They had to use new skins for this because basically the new wine, the pure wine, was also going to produce internal pressure 
And that internal pressure was so great that only a new wineskin could contain it. The church understands something here. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. The internal pressure is so great that only a new heart can contain it. And that's what you've been given. And you wouldn't want to mix the old with the new at this point. My old life, my old traditions to make me pleasing to God in my own sight. What you want is what God has promised us in Christ to fill your heart. To know that you are forgiven. Know that you are accepted because of this that's been poured into you by the Holy Spirit. Not because of what I do. But listen, what's being poured into you, like this new wine, is powerful. It is magnificent. It is God-exalting. And it's something that the old skins of man-made religion and human effort couldn't contain because they would crack, they would leak, they would burst. You have the internal power and purity of the Holy Spirit now dwelling in you. This is the new wine that comes to us by God's grace. And understand something about this. That new wine that comes into us is not something that we deserved or we earned. It comes into us because of God's favor through Christ's efforts, Christ's merits. But that new wine that comes into us, it is certainly powerful. And that new wine, when it comes into us, it transforms us from the inside out. So the people were asking, Jesus, why aren't your disciples as outwardly religious and outwardly righteous looking as the Pharisees? He says, look, what they have is just a shell of the reality. What I'm going to pour into you, oh, it's going to transform you. But not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's what his grace does. It does that because it's the Holy Spirit who's being poured into us at conversion. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to come inside of us and transform us like new wine comes into the new wineskin and makes it full of purity and power. That's what happens here. The old could not do that. The old couldn't contain that. The Pharisees were trying to conform outwardly to make their hearts bow inwardly, and it would never work. But Christ says, when I give you a new heart, oh, you're going to bow but it'll be willingly. It'll be joyfully. Understand this about grace. Grace is never, ever, ever a license to sin. Grace is the power to rejoice in forgiveness. Grace is the power to pursue righteousness because you have been favored by God himself. In, in Mark 2, Mark's telling us through this narrative that it's by God's grace alone that we receive that new wine, that new spirit in us. It's God alone who creates this new wine, a new wine skin in us. And it produces a new heart in us, a heart that's filled with joy, a heart that's filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit and controlled by new affections that now long to obey God's law out of the joy of our salvation, not to obtain it or to keep it. That is the eternal difference between the two. We obey now because of the joy of the Holy Spirit who lives in us, who assures us that Christ took our place, lived our life, died our death, rose victoriously for our justification so that we could now have God's present love and affection for eternity. We don't, we don't try to obtain that. We just rest in it and rejoice in it. 
But we want to pursue whatever it takes to make much of the one who graced us. Legalism can't do that. Legalism doesn't produce joy. It produces resentment. It produces mourning. But it doesn't produce rejoicing. Now I want to point something out very important about this whole, whole narrative that I haven't mentioned yet. Something that's very important about these two illustrations. Understand something. I've been talking to you about the wedding guests. The wedding guests. I hope you weren't applying that to yourselves as we were reading through that text. Because you're not the wedding guests. No. You are the bride. You're the bride of Christ. We're reading this from the resurrected side of the cross. We're, we're not merely the wedding guests in Mark's account. We are the one the bridegroom came to celebrate. We are the bride of Christ. We have been united to him in an eternal covenant of marriage by God's sovereign grace. That's why we today as the bride should rejoice even more than the guests in the narrative in Mark 2. We have more to celebrate. We have more to rejoice in because of the new cloth and the new wine that we've been given. We understand more than they understood even at that time. We understand that he was taken away to the cross on our behalf by God's grace to give us the promise of a wedding feast that would never cease. It's not just seven days. Listen to this. For eternity, though we do not deserve it, we will be treated like the king because of his accomplishments. Not because of what I've done or would do. We will celebrate forever this eternal inheritance that Christ purchased on our behalf. Look with me at one more passage. Maybe two more passages, but in particular, Revelation 19. This is what we should rejoice over. Revelation 19, verse 6. I know there's a lot in Mark 2 to take in, but this is, I think, where we need to rest our minds here this morning as we think about that we're not the guests, we're the bride that's being spoken of, and that Christ has promised us this, this kind of reception. Verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. I mean, first of all, can you just imagine what this is going to be like? Listen, we sang well this morning, but nothing compared to this. Have you ever stood near a waterfall? I have. Big waterfall. It is deafening. And John is likening the sounds of those rejoicing over the wedding feast as to that of the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Listen, if, if, if anything should make you rejoice now, maybe this should. Because this is a song that's going to be saying about you. This is your song. Here's the song. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Now notice this. It was granted that is graced granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Folks, that is not that is not man-made tradition. That is the righteous robes of Christ that they are wearing. 
And notice this, the righteous robes of Christ make a difference in the way the, the saints, the bride, even lives their life. Look at verse 18b. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The reason the deeds were righteous is because they were wrought in faith in Christ, who is their cloak of righteousness. Listen, Jesus' sacrifice, his obedience, his death, his resurrection promises us that this is going to be our wedding feast. This is going to be what he celebrates over us throughout eternity. It's never going to cease. I mean, we have good days and bad days today, don't we, as Christians? Some days you're like, man, God loves me. All right. It's a great day. And there are other days you, you, you stumble through the day going, God must really hate me right now. I have really, I know he doesn't hate me, but man, I just, I have so, so destroyed my witness, just corrupted my thought life. I've, I've, I've messed up everything today. So I, I, I can't even imagine him loving me. Understand this, that love for you that's expressed to us in Christ is never going to cease. That should make us rejoice. The words of the bridegroom in Mark 2 should make us rejoice. The illustration should make us rejoice. There's another illustration I want to show you real quickly. Ephesians 5, this should also make you rejoice. Ephesians 5, when you recognize your own inability to to meet God's standards on your own and to, to be as obedient as you can be or should be. And you have to rest in what he does to cleanse you of your unrighteous behavior. Let this cause you to rejoice this morning. Let it wash over your soul as we're being commanded here in Ephesians 5.25 to do through the preaching of the word. Now, he, he says, remember, remember, it's bridegroom and bride here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Listen, Jesus didn't die for every individual that lives on the planet, ever would live on the planet. He dies for his church. It makes you very special in his sight. He dies for his bride. And here's why he dies for her. That he might set her apart, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Here's why so that he might present the church, the bride, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why does he do this? Why does God favor us? Why does God grace us and cause us to rejoice? So that we could make much of Christ who cleansed us through his righteousness, through his blood, through his cross. I don't know how many of you have studied the book of Ephesians. But when I read this passage, it's very, very encouraging. There was one major industry in Ephesus. It was the industry of prostitution. When Paul's giving instructions here on how a husband should love his wife, he's most likely talking to men who picked a wife out of prostitution. A wife that needed to be cleansed, that needed to be washed over and over again. Because her heart, her mind felt corrupt by her past sins. But he tells the husbands, continue washing her. Continue cleansing her. Continue showing her that you love her, no matter what her past was like. Show her that she is acceptable in your sight. Church, that's what Jesus does for us. Every time we hear the word of God and his grace being preached. 
He's washing us. He's saying, forget about the past. Look at what I have accomplished. Look at what I have graced you with. And rejoice. And rest. I am making you acceptable as my bride for my praise. Just rest in that. So here's, here's my loaded question for you as I end. Are you resting in that? Are you rejoicing in that? Are, are you trusting in God's grace to do this, to cleanse you and to make you an acceptable bride for Christ? Or are you still trying to earn God's favor by your own efforts? That's only going to leave you in a state of mourning if you do that. But God wants you to be rejoicing because he chose you. He chose to put his new wine in you. He chose to cover you with his son's righteousness so that you could rest in his grace and declare his greatness because he has made you an acceptable bride for the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want you to think about that this morning as I pray. Father, as we think about what you have done for us and question our motives for obedience, our activity, whether or not it's done in faith because of Christ's work, out of joy over our salvation, and whether it's done to try to obtain more favor from you, to keep you satisfied. But God, either, either we're looking to Christ as our only hope of salvation and sanctification, or we're going to have to trust in ourselves, and we know that we are not trustworthy. We will fail. But we want to thank you this morning, Father, for you have shown us in Christ that there is no failing for the one who has faith. For the one who simply rests upon your grace, there will be great rejoicing now and for eternity because you have made us acceptable in your sight through the work of Christ alone. So Lord, we want to thank you for that this morning. Thank you for causing us to feast today on your grace rather than fasting over our self-righteousness. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have of forgiveness and the convicting power of your spirit that leads us to Christ again and again to rejoice in your good news. We thank you, Jesus, for this. And I pray this in your name.